as surely as I'm speaking by the Spirit of God, that is a word for a person right now, that is God penetrating your heart, it's burning on the inside of you, and you need to make a vow of faith of a thousand dollars. Oh, Bob, couldn't you say 25? No! You can't make a thousand dollar vow of faith. I'm saying in faith. So we got people that don't have, teenagers that have no, hardly nothing going for them. They got enough faith to make a thousand dollar vow and send a little five dollars here and ten dollars there as God begins to move like a whirlwind in their lives. Because they don't have that old programming of religion. Well, this isn't the way we do it in my church. Forget your church. I'm talking about what God says. And if you want the kind of miracles that are in the Bible, you're going to have to do what God said to do. Today we're going to talk about one of my personal pet peeves, and that is, of course, the Toronto Maple Leafs, who just signed Austin Matthews to an $11.634 million contract. That's average annual value um, for five years. Yeah, so he's going to be making $11.6 million a year. That's and peanuts compared to the NBA, just that, putting it out there. That is, yeah, that's really low uh, for a professional athlete, but... I was just thinking about that. Like, I think that that obviously means that Austin Matthews is walking with the Lord because <laughs> when you're walking with the Lord, he makes you prosperous. That's just, that's just how Amen. it goes, right? Amen. Right? That's how it goes. Right? Except, I mean, unless your name is Job or Peter or uh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> All kidding aside, we're talking about prosperity theology today. And uh, I actually want to turn it over to Mike, who I think can probably articulate it a lot better as to why it's wrong. <laughs> hey, hey, there you go. Well, one, one thing is Job did in the end get all of it back. So, you know, there was a period of suffering, but he, but the Lord blessed him. Uh, yeah, that's a great thought. Great thought. For us, the way that we understand it is very simple, right? That when when, when you come to Jesus... The end game of that is ultimately the good of your soul, not the good of your bank account. A simple way that we've talked about it at church before. That the prosperity theology essentially has um, what I would call an overemphasis on old covenant promises that try to make its way into the new covenant. Because in, in the old covenant, there were a lot of monetary material promises because that's sort of how God operated and related to, to the people. You see with David, you see in the life of Abraham and Job that... Um, the the righteousness that, that was there um, did, in a sense, produce some prosperity, but then you have to read the Bible as a whole story, right? And there's the Proverbs, which make it a good case that righteousness and, and prosperity can be linked and also might not be linked, that wicked people prosper a lot. Um, in fact, probably more often than some righteous people, and that there's righteous poor and unrighteous poor. There's kind of like a four-quadrant understanding of of a person's relationship to money specifically. Now, on the sort of modern-day prosperity gospel, it would be essentially, you know, you follow Jesus, you get money, promotions, relationships, 
health, right? The health, wealth, and friends, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it is, the reason why I don't like it is, is I think that it, it cheapens what Jesus actually tried to do for us in a very real sense. Like it makes essentially a religious game of the gospel. If you believe in this thing, then you get all these other sort of material blessings that, 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 because the problem is, is in, 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 in a sense, right? Like I can understand the psychology of it. Um, you know, the more righteous or the more holy or the more wise you are, you would expect there to be a kind of prosperity in that. And I actually would argue that is true. If you use wisdom in money, hopefully you'll make some good investments yeah. and make some good choices. Like you're saving money. We've, we've talked about that at church a lot, right? That budgeting is a good thing and wanting to have an inheritance for your kids is a, is a good thing. But that generosity is the goal, um, ultimately, like, like Jesus was. But the thing is, when we begin attaching practice, and that's where I think it gets weird, is a prosperity theology, you know, will inevitably lead to, I think, false promises and false practice. Uh, meaning, you know, you go to Africa, hey, come to Jesus and all your problems are going to go away, right? And they have droves of, of people coming to hear this message. And and then the practice would be things where, you know, it's it's almost mimicking pagan religion in the sense of here are a bunch of things to do that make the gods happy and when the gods are happy you prosper right. like, like that is a basic trajectory of in fact um tim keller talked about this when, when he described the the old testament god he, he did a sermon on isaiah 58 um about justice and suffering and the poor and he talked about how basically in, in the pagan world or the non-jewish non-christian world um the rich people were always the blessed people. The, the ones that had power and money were always the ones who were identified as being closer to God because that meant that, you know, the gods were blessing them. But in the, but in the, in, in, in the scriptures, what we see is God identifying himself with the widow, with the orphan, with the poor, with, with the impoverished, with, you know, like even uh, there, there there's a proverb which basically says that um, if you like deny the poor, you're denying their maker. He even attaches it right there, um, that there's a serious connection between God and those who are impoverished. And even the story of Jesus, right? Like, you know, a man who was the most blessed ever, right? Like more blessed than Job and David and all these people whose life, was ultimately fulfilled in abuse, abandonment, rejection, injustice, murder, and yes, in resurrection. But I see the but I see the thing I, I would I would argue is that a lot of times the prosperity gospel kind of takes a shortcut um, where the goal is resurrection. Yes, hundred percent. Like we we talk about that in our church, we we believe heaven's coming here, and that's our our job to bring that. But there is this period where where we don't get the resurrection without the cross. In fact, I was just listening to to a sermon today, uh, where where Paul it's a, it's First Corinthians four, and he's writing to the Corinthians. He's saying like, you guys think you're kings, like like you've arrived, but look at my life. I have been the refuse of the world, mm. right? That I have suffered, I've been beat, I've been I've been left out, and he and he uses this image of being the prisoner of war in Caesar's sort of triumphal wartime parade coming back to be go, to, to be go, wow, to be taken, grammar, to be taken to um, essentially uh, the Colosseum or, or some other gladiatorial place to be given to the lions. He's like, like, that's what my life is. And you people, all you want is to have nice clothing 
and nice stuff to be Christian and, and kind of comfortable. And, 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 and although one day that will be us, right? Redeemed, restored, made right. In the immediate, we, we don't get to have that over-realized um, presence right, right, right now where there is suffering. And, and the issue is when it comes to prosperity that everything is given to me now if I just believe, if I just have, and that, that the, the goal of the cross was to essentially um, in this moment rewrite and remake every single issue and not ultimately remake because that is the goal. The scope is ultimate then you get into some weird spaces of like, you know, having people believe that if you give some anointed man of God money, you somehow gain his gift, mm. which is dumb. You cannot buy spiritual gifts. That's that, 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 that's actually a story in the book of Acts where it didn't go well, right? Or, or you, you know, sow a seed into this ministry and God will answer your next prayer. Well, again, like that's not gospel. That's, that, that's just religion. And can the practice of, you know, generosity help discipline our soul? Yes. Can the practice of generosity kind of activate a faith? I think it can. But not for the sake of saying, hey, God, I gave money. Now it's your turn. Right. right? That Like that is the basic praxis of religion. Mm-hmm. Look what I've done where, where, where the gospel is. You are recipient of everything anyway. Um, and so rejoice in that. And if you're blessed, you bless to bless, yeah. right? And, and, and if you suffer, as Paul writes, and we're going to be doing Philippians in a, in a couple of weeks as a church, um, it's sort of our next big series. And as Paul, Paul writes about that, he goes like, if I'm suffering, it's for the glory of God. And I'm going to use that for the glory of God. If, if I'm trying, like it's for the, like, to live as Christ, to die as again, that's how my perspective goes. And he actually says that he almost wants him to suffer a little bit to, to partner with Christ, that there has to be this kind of, of mutual suffering in the Christian life. Not that that's our goal, but we're just not going to be unaware that the prosperity gospel is really like it's cheap. And and usually it preys upon poor people because it's a very because like again, the psychology the, the psychology of it is so simple. Make a sacrifice and you'll basically, you know, arm bar God into blessing you. Yeah. And like that, that will lead inevitably to very dangerous places. So for me, prosperity theology, and I've heard it described as just like a very American religion, a very American twist on Christianity. Cause in a lot of ways it, it really just embodies everything that rubs me wrong, maybe about capitalism and religion. It's kind of like the, the terrible intersection of both of those things. And I just don't really, like, I don't see how it's sustainable. Like, I get everyone's after the American dream. So I think there's a bit of a bit of that that kind of keeps it alive for people. But, like, I've heard of stories of people, like, taking on these stupid mortgages, like, right before the financial crash in 2008, because their pastor told them to. Like, their pastor was like, yeah, you're, God wants you to have that house that you can't afford, that God wants you to have this. So, like, how do people stay in that when it inevitably goes south? Because I... I mean, if you're saying it's they're preying on poor people and probably giving them like, you know, whether they mean to or not, terrible advice on how to steward their money. Like, I just I can't believe it hasn't run dry by now. Well, I would I would be careful to. Um, like, I would say that the kind of prosperity theology is 
is able to be birthed in a very comfortable capitalistic society. I wouldn't link the two directly because I would argue that there is an altruistic capitalism that we can be in, uh, which is probably a whole other conversation that we, that we can have. Uh, but um, I think that, that, that although it preys upon the poor, it also preys upon the comfortable. And this is where I think we need to sort of really get into it a little bit because yes, like I've been, like I've seen churches that, I know because of close proximity in, in, in different ways ties to them that have an abundance of, of, of poorer people who give so much, so much money that the pastor has three mansions and, and it flies around in a personal helicopter in Canada. It's a, it's a Canadian church, which seems almost weird, but um, and, and that the belief is that if you just keep sowing in, so there is that 100%, but I do think that there is a draw into the into the the comfortable Christian because why would I not want to hear right that yeah I can be a Christian and not sacrifice right that's ultimately yeah. what, what what it means it means I don't have to give up my promotion because God wants me to have it I don't have to I don't have to save or I don't have to be wise because God wants me to have because because you know the marking of an arrival is, is is a house and so I want to have that or I think it, it preys upon our desire, and I would say across all culture, the desire to get comfortable. Mm -hmm. and, and when you have a theology that promises the desires of my heart that may be sinful, right? Not always bad, maybe, but like come from a bad place. Um, like why, that, that is going to light a fire, especially, yes, given the sort of American context, and I would argue Canadian context of you can make something of yourself, right? You can do that. And, and again, just just because the sermon's in my head right now, right? That's that from Corinthians four, First Corinthians four, where where, where Paul kind of contrasts upward mobility and downward mobility. Where like the goal of the of the modern world for most people is upward mobility, better job, better house, more this, more that, um, better clothes, better friends, whatever. Which is what the prosperity gospel would offer. Hey, come to Jesus; He'll fix your life, and He's here will be the evidence, mm -hmm. right? But He's like, no downward mobility, right? So that God looks greater in my life, you know, more sacrifice, right? More, um, more of the less of my life, more generosity, more giving, more in his words, suffering for the sake of Jesus. And not that we wish suffering. That's the thing that I think people get wrong is, is there is this poverty theology, which we'll get to in a minute, I guess, of like the opposite issue that Christians should only ever suffer, which I think is stupid as well. Uh, but uh, we have to just wrestle with the fact that in the modern world, prosperity theology, in in all its forms, from the most blatant to the most subtle, of of just simply kind of a general idea of like wanting the Old Testament promises uh, of materialism to still be applicable, when the Book of Hebrews is like, guys, you have a better promise. You you have more riches in Christ than you ever ever realized, and that and the subtleness of that staying in a world where the church typically wants to be quote-unquote relevant and by relevant we often mean cool culturally kind of comfortable you can be here be part of what we're doing and, and really just find yourself attaching a belief system to a life yeah. um, which ultimately we know as christians that that's not the goal the goal is to, to yes get into this belief system and have that affect our praxis affect what we do but I find that when I've heard sort of the, the subtleness of the prosperity gospel, because most people, most Christians, I would argue, right, look at the the blatant, hey, give your money, get a miracle stuff, and we'll be like, eh, 
I don't know if that's how it works. I would argue that there's a lot of of wisdom that Christians should generally hopefully have. Now, if you've been trained your whole life, that's what it is, and there will be those generational hurdles of teaching. But I find it's more it's 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 the more subtle things of of comfortable Christianity, of of easy believing, of of hey, you know what? What is so bad about giving everything for the next five years to get a home that you really don't need? And who defines what need is? And, and, and is that home, you know, in, in your whole mind going to be used for the glory of God or for the comfort of your soul? Because if you want a big home and, and you think God's going to bless you in that and he's giving you a job to get that, hey, awesome, go get it, bless your family. But then how are you using it? Are you using it for the mission of God? Right? So in lack or in plenty, our goal is missional. How is this giving glory to God, making much of Jesus and inviting people to know him? And so big house, small house, lots of cars. I don't actually care how much you have. It's how are you using it? Because the Bible makes it very clear, there will be rich people, right? So if you have a theology that's against rich, rich, riches, you have a weak theology. Right. If you have a th- theology that can't handle suffering, you have a weak theology. And so we try to hit in the middle where when we've talked about this as a church, what we have said is that God is, is wanting to produce good in your life, to use all things for your good, but that begins in the health of your soul. That That is ultimately where he's leading you to. And then everything else flows from that place. If riches come, awesome. If they don't, keep praising. If, if prosperity happens, use it to bless people. If it doesn't, bless people. Like, like there's not a lot of option there. It's just bless people, love people. And in the midst of it, sort of get out of yourself. Because I was, I was hearing one pastor say, like, if you go to Africa, if you go to more impoverished places, and you see joy on their face, like, you, you know it's genuine. Right, that, that, that there is something there. But if you go to an American or, or a Canadian, you see joy in their face, it's way easier to think, well, maybe that's because of all the stuff they have. Maybe it's because it's not really in Jesus. And, and and that's not necessarily, again, a bad thing. I don't, think, I don't think things are bad. It's just we have to realize that we have been kind of called into a, a, a lull in our theology that doesn't want to deal well with, with, with wealth, right? That, that doesn't want to deal well with comfort. And suffering, also I'm a testing in that what you get. Well, God doesn't want you to suffer. God doesn't want God wants to heal every disease. God can, right? Don't get, like we pray for it every week, right? If people are gonna come get we we pray for it, but but we allow God to be sovereign and say, God, we want permission for your will to get done, whatever that will is. And I think where a uh, prosperity theology comes in is basically God, here's what we want your will to be. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna give you a lot of money yep. uh, to make that thing happen. Right, it's almost like a like oh, you're buying off God. And yeah, you can't buy off God. Yeah, um, so that's really, I mean, that is uh, one extreme. Certainly, you you got into it a bit there. That there are, um, there has to be nuance in how you view money uh, theologically. Prosperity theology rubs me in such a wrong way that obviously my first response to kind of reading about it was like, what's what is the polar opposite of this because that's what i want to be i want to be totally against what prosperity theology is about and uh it turns out there are polar opposites to this and they're really um it really they're more common in the catholic church and uh, even the eastern orthodox church to some extent as well there's a in the catholic church there is a rich kind of history of uh identifying with the poor of preferential option for the poor the idea that um we have to really like one of our goals for achieving justice is helping the poor and oppressed and being with them. And even some people go so far as to say is that Jesus is, you know, especially identifies with the poor and the oppressed. And um, out of that, there kind of came this theology called liberation theology, which was sort of this 
almost blend of Marxist thought with uh, that kind of preferential option for the poor teaching. And what that does is it really just encourages Christians to be fighting for the poor and the oppressed and trying to change society and, and uh, engaging with, you know, some sorts of, sorts of socialist ideals a bit. Um, and I mean, you can see why that appeals to me, Mike, because <laughs> I often argue for a lot of those things, but, uh, it is kind of extreme. I, I think I have to say that I think, you know, focusing your whole theology around this one issue and, and in such a strong kind of combative way also doesn't seem like the solution to me either well and i think too with the liberation theology a lot of it came from a very like political background of wanting to essentially and this might be an overstatement but kind of like reshape society around um liberating the poor liberating the the oppressed and, and again i think like most theologies that that end up in maybe unbalanced places is just when you do take one extreme and run with it to its logical end and you realize a logical end is not well nuanced right like do i believe that jesus in the redemption of the world right has a deep care for those who are oppressed those who are poor and of course we do like like we see that in, in the scriptures all the time but he was never i would argue um like polarized against the wealthy he just said hey it's harder for yeah. you right hey here's what you need to do and, and plus the fact that like throughout history like the church has gone forward off of wealthy people like they have to pay for stuff we have to make stuff happen we even see in this early church that there were rich guys selling stuff to help the church start and and, and yes they, it, there were these elements of a kind of a socialist thing that ended up you know going for a bit, but then the church outgrew it in an immediate community, and we begin seeing it multiply across um, the, the region of the time. But I, I would argue that the desire to liberate is, is part of the heart of the gospel, but it begins in the liberation from sin, and then it can begin in society. And so I think that's where things get, get wrong, is that we, we, we begin attributing that the results of the gospel is somehow primarily material whether right, it's prosperity yeah. or in, in liberation so or it poverty a, right it is like a bit of a shortcut almost in the same way that prosperity theology be, is argue, because yeah. you're you're kind of addressing um yeah a material outcome rather than a sole cause well and we, and we would say like it, uh, capitalism socialism marxism give me any system you want right the issue is that it's being run by human beings right who are we believe in original sin and by nature selfish Right, that's probably the biggest issue. Is power does not do well ultimately with like in our hands, and so no matter what it is, it's going to get to a place where it's not what we thought it would be or whatever. And so, yeah, I just I think that we have to understand that the goal for the Christian mission begins and is punctuated on the individual finding Jesus, finding redemption, and then from that place living out and creating society out of that scope. That our goal is not to topple governments. In fact, Paul says to submit to governments and see their role for what, what it is. But our goal is to topple sin, to 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 take on, you know, the, the battle against death, right? And sometimes that is going to look different in different places, and sometimes that will look like 
you know, advocacy. It should like it, we should be advocates for those who are marginalized, right? It, it might look like political reform at times, hundred percent it will, right? But we are also recognizing that again we are citizens of a greater kingdom of a heavenly kingdom and that we want to invite people into that citizenship first before any kind of thing now we've talked about this i don't know what episode it was but how you know empty stomachs have no ears and i think that is a key thing is that there is a kind of social movement that that goes with the gospel always um but which when you separate those two out, which is when we get in trouble, because I found that that's where things get where you get to the social gospel movement, which is all so social. All that Jesus wants us to do is love people, serve people, help people, justice, mercy. Then you get sort of like that, you know, 50 years ago, evangelicalism, which is just preach the gospel. That's all we have to do. Let people hear about the life of Jesus. And that's it. And, and the problem is both are right and wrong because they need each other. Right? You can't, like, we need to preach the gospel as our primary goal, right? I would never argue for anything against that. But we have a, a call to good work, a call to love. And that's where those other sort of more social-based gospels do correct mm -hmm. some of that movement. And so I, I would say that, you know, the opposite of prosperity gospel is not liberation. It's not poverty. It's Jesus, Right, like, because the poverty gospel is there too. Every Christian should be poor, suffering, bad, sick, just never, whatever, just just never really, you know, triumphing in life. Because look at you, like, let me, right, like, that's dumb too. Because you've been given talents and abilities and opportunities that you need to make most of. That's Matthew twenty-five and the talents. So you need to use your life to the glory of God. But understanding that 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 the center position or, or the middle position on it all is recognizing that whatever you have been given you use. Yeah. So if you've been given poverty because of forces, because of opportunity, because of choices that you or your parents or whatever made, sure, do what you can do to get out of it. But you don't like, you don't not worship Jesus. You don't not try to do the things of God. You don't just focus on getting rich. The goal was never to get rich. This is where we would come against culture. The goal of the Christian life is not to be rich. It's not to have enough money in the bank account. It's to be wise. But it's also not to be poor. Like, it's not like God's like, hey, if you do not desire to be poor in your life, you're a bad Christian. That's not how this goes, right? Because if you've been given the ability to make wealth and to bless people generously, you should be doing that. Like, and then that's where I think we have to correct both sides. It's like, we are both wrong. And the issue will be, where do you lean and how do we come back to that middle space? Um, and, and so for us, I don't know, to me, I, I get as mad at the prosperity gospel as I would the poverty gospel, but... The same time, if I had to, like, if you're like had a gun to my head and said choose, yeah, right, I probably choose the poverty one because yeah. I feel like you can you can build off that a little. I more. I think there's a more strong biblical basis for the poverty gospel than the prosperity gospel. I think there, I agree, it lacks nuance, and I think there are other like Matthew 25. There's other scripture that would come against the poverty gospel, but yeah, again, if I had to lead one way, it would definitely be in that direction. Yeah, and, and that's where culture just has to, like, we have to rub up against culture in that weird kind of way where it's like, hey, make money. Sure, do it, man. But, like, your life is more than that, mm -hmm. right? Because that's where we have to see money as a tool. This is where I think the action of the gospel begins to correct our heart is that money is simply a tool to provide, right, to to give us the, the sustenance of life. But really, what do we believe? That actually comes from God. That The money is a tool from the hand of God for those things. And that I'm going to trust in the provision of that. That's where contentment is so huge, right? Like 
I think that's probably the thing with prosperity gospel is it's linked a lot to contentment where Paul says, right, in Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is he talking about? Literally, he says, having none, poverty, or being in abundance, prosperity. Mm -hmm. And it's like, in both, I need strength because my sin can go in either way, right? There's actually a prayer in the book of Proverbs where he says, God, don't give me too little that I like curse you and and, uh, hate you, but don't give me too much that I forget you. There's this there, there's this middle space that every individual heart has to wrestle in that that do you love money so much that you'll get greedy yeah. or get complaining or, or get unsatisfied or get contented. And that's where I think, again, the comforts of the modern life make it harder to reconcile that the goal of the Christian is not the same as culture. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's so true. You really do see sin at both extremes of poverty and prosperity. I mean, you could argue that okay, uh, a lot of a lot of the prosperous people, a lot of the wealthy people, due to greed, are make inflicting those conditions on the rest of people. But you also see statistics that say that poverty is what leads to crime, increased crime, and so at both extremes, there is different kinds of sin to be wrestled with and, and dealt with. And they both need Jesus. Well, they do. And, and the thing is, like, again, this is what I don't, think, I don't think we fully like to talk about. But the richer you are, the more responsibility you have. Right? This is a thing that I would say maybe would, would, would frame my idea of capitalism, to be honest. Right? Is that, like, there is this moral imperative throughout the whole of Scripture, right, that is the more God has given you, the more you have in your hand to resource and be a resource for people. Mm-hmm. And so like the, the call of God, make me you know wealthy. Like some people want is f- like fine, but realize what that is for, right? The, it's for the fact that we do need to take care of the poor. Like this is like God's big critique so often in, in, in the ancient world. Like he, he comes to his people and yes, there's often times of, of, of idolatry and they're worshiping other gods, but at the same token, it's that they're treating people who are poor horrible, that they're taking advantage of the poor. Like, this is God's big critique in the book of Isaiah, right, in, in 58, where he's just like, you guys are fasting and worshiping, and it means nothing because you oppress poor people and make them work on the Sabbath. Like, what is this? And then he goes on to say, like, if you would just feed them, if you would just take care of them, if you would put their clothes on the back, then my light will shine upon you. And so, like, in that, God never said, all you rich people are evil because you're rich. Yeah. It's because your attitude, right? And he didn't say the poor people are righteous. It was just the attitude towards them. And so again, I think it gets back to this point where we have to see it, that if we want to live in a prosperous society and preach about houses and preach about bank accounts and new cars and blah, 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 fine, do it with the responsibility of as God increases you, so does your responsibility of generosity. That, that you need to give proportionally, yes, but I would argue the more you have, the, the, the greater responsibility there's that for that proportion to grow, in fact. That we talk about 10% in the church, right? Tithe and all that stuff. That's a good baseline for the new covenant. Right? Not like if you're given 10%, this gonna get a little controversial, maybe, but like you should not be proud of that. Like, like that, like that, that's the point. Like, if you are able to be giving more, you should be giving more. Now, we would argue the opposite, though, and this is what I've said to our church. Like, if you um, cannot give because of situations 10%, but you can give one, guess what you do? You give one faithfully, cheerfully, and joyfully. 
Like if you actually add up the Old Testament giving that people often attach to this, right? It's up to like 27, 30%. So if you want to be, you know, strict Old Covenant, well, then you better be given 30% and people aren't doing that. And so for me, it's like, you know what? If, if you, the more you have and the more proportional that you can give, you need to be doing that. Does it all need to go to the church? I'm not going to make that argument, right? I think a tithe at least should. But it should be given to the poor, given to justice, given to the mission of God throughout the world that if we're really going to talk about money and get real, right, the prosperity gospel should be preached so that the mission of God can go further because more rich people are giving more money, not hoarding it, not keeping it. Like, and that, and that those who are impoverished should be encouraged to be wise, should be corrected in some of those things, right? That that, that is, you could argue, one of the benefits of the modern Western world is that Given the right circumstances, you can get your way out of poverty. Sometimes there is barriers, and we get that. But it, but but when we understand that both sides of this thing can be trained, corrected, and encouraged, that's what we need to do, right? You're poor. Okay, well, how do we fix that? What can we do to train you to think biblically about your poverty, and what can we do about? It? If you're rich, great. How do we how do we train you to think biblically and missionally about? Your money, and, and so I just I like I, to me the danger of the prosperity gospel cheapens the gospel. Jesus died not to make you rich, to make your soul rich. And so we need to, we need to just get back to that space, but we cannot be then championing a suffering based gospel because we do believe there is a resurrection that there, that there is healing in the life that there is good things to come. That if you fo- like we we talk about this at church all the time. If you follow Jesus, right, we do believe. You should be getting better, healing the wounds of your soul, dealing with yourself. It's just making you a better spouse, a better husband, um, which is the same thing, <laughs> a better wife, a better parent, a better bot. Like you should be getting better as he takes away the selfishness and the greed and the things in your heart. So I'm not saying like we should not believe for that. All I'm saying is giving your money at the beginning of the year because you believe you want a house this year. Borderline paganism. You know what's really fun? Reading the list of mortal sins in the Roman Catholic Church. Because there's okay. some... Okay, fun. Some, uh, it's a loose word there. Yeah, well, it's just interesting. So here's the list, and you'll you'll kind of... We'll go down it, and you'll be like, okay, that makes sense. So we'll start off. We got abortion, encouragement of others' grave sins or vices, adultery, apostasy, blasphemy, cheating and unfair wages, contraception, defrauding a worker of a just wage, divorce, endangerment of human life or safety. And this is my favorite one right here. Participation in Freemasonry. So I have to wonder a little bit that if their issue with Freemasonry is that they're substituting, uh, people who participate in it are substituting Freemasonry with real religion. And this kind of had me thinking about uh, our episode from last week where people uh, find religious experiences and things that are not religion. I don't know what their exact reasoning is. I'm sure it's much more complex. Are you saying CrossFit that. is a mortal sin? I, I'm just wondering. I'm just, I'm, I'm opening the question. <laughs> but, I wonder why specifically Freemasonry though. Like, is, is there other things listed? Like, there, I don't think there are even other religions um, listed here. But I think Freemasonry, like, it's essentially an old boys club kind of thing it's a you know it's a networking club that you join and you build community around that so they tell you at least so they tell you i've I've, heard other things i've heard other things too but 
yeah, I just wonder. And it's crazy because well, the funny thing is, and this is where this is an example of the church trying to imitate uh, the secular society. Is basically that's what the Knights of Columbus is. I've hmm. heard it's basically the Catholics' answer to Freemasonry. Well, you got to have an answer, right, for everything. That's right. So, you know, we had you know hip hop and culture. Then we came out with you know grits. I don't know if you've ever heard of grits. They were no. a hip hop band way way back in the day. You know, we had. Blink one eight two, so we had to have um... Reliant K, Hawk <laughs> Nelson. Sure, sure. Uh, you know, we got movies like you know, uh, you know, what's the one like about the world ending twenty twelve? Oh yeah, right. Yeah. So we had to put Left Behind. That's right. Obviously, yeah. right. Like there's gotta be something. But uh, I find those mortal sins interesting. I've never actually, to be honest, studied the mortal sins of the Catholic Church. I've never really found it. You understand the difference between, like, mortal sin and then just, like, regular sin, though, right? Mortal sin is, like, there's no coming back. It, sort of. It's, it's, uh, it's, there's no coming back from it unless you go and do penance and repent. And I usually... Wouldn't all sin require repentance? I don't know much about Catholicism, I'll be real. Other than just the... So I guess I guess in Catholic theology, a, uh, a mortal sin is gravely sinful act which can lead to damnation if you don't repent of it before death. So that would d- differ from like I think there's other sins that are considered like venial sins or they're they're lesser sins that they don't they're sins but they don't but they don't count t- they don't count well they don't take away your salvation. So you can so you can do them if you want. So yeah, you can do them. I mean, as long as you confess them at some point. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, that sounds convenient. Yeah, it's a What's little... What's the list of those ones? I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. That's not how we do this thing. Yeah. Well, I would say that... I would I would agree that maybe some of the ones they listed on there have more grave consequences actually in this life than other sins, which I think would be interesting um, to, to sort of talk through is the idea that, um, you know, like adultery, um, we, we just dealt with that on Sunday. As a church, we did talk about abortion and things like that, that those decisions do have... I would say more um, immediate consequence, but salvifically, sin is sin. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's where I guess it's a, it's a good idea, maybe, but I think it's just applied in a very wrong direction. That's the thing I think about. I think a lot of uh, things that the Catholic Church sort of codifies in canon law are actually fundamentally good ideas. I just I'm not necessarily comfortable with the legalism that can arise from that. I I think um, I think it's a little bit dangerous because you're almost assuming power above the temporal at that point, especially because the Catholic Church sees itself as the mother church that God is like actively, I guess, working in. I mean, so when the when the Pope kind of speaks ex cathedra or whatever it is. And makes these statements like they have, uh, you know, eternal consequences. Almost that's kind of the implication of that. So, mm-hmm. and that's where we as Protestants would be like, "Sorry, Pope, appreciate it, but opinions are not scripture." Now, I say that kind of tongue in cheek because I do believe this would be something where I would not maybe line up with a lot of evangelicals. Is that tradition and what we have believed and what has been passed down, and even like honoring authority not necessarily saying the pope is the greatest authority i'm just saying in the church there still has to be a level of authority that people who have been we would argue hopefully 
you know, given positions of influence for a reason, hopefully good. I'm not, again, not making any statements here, just trying to make a general point that we do need to be people who honor um, the gifts of other people. And so that's where, like, I think this actually speaks to a greater idea around um, how we relate to people who have a teaching gift in the church, right? That it's not that, you know, they have some secret understanding of the scripture. They've just been given an ability by God to explain it and apply it in a very real and honest way that people can connect with. And so we shouldn't be like, I don't want to learn. I'm the only teacher. No, you can't. Listen to me. The Bible is accessible. We believe that. I would rather you read it yourself than anything else. But we do have to honor that God does give scholars and, and philosophers and leaders and teachers to do some of this work. I mean, I just don't think we have to go the opposite direction and be like, well, we don't want any authority. because Yeah, and we don't have to reinvent the wheel for ourselves a lot of, like, the church is 2,000 years old. Like, we don't, a lot of these thoughts and questions have been wrestled by smarter people than us throughout history and by groups of them. They've come together. They've talked about this. They've dialogued over it. We don't have to go through a lot of these things again and again and uh i mean obviously there's been differences of opinion between different movements throughout history but well, and i think it's humility though that's the thing yeah. right is i remember talking with one person who literally said to me no one can teach me i don't need commentary i don't need history i'm like like you're asking for bad things to happen in your theology if you are the only if you are the god unto yourself in this case not that authority and whatever are but just that that that, that place of accountability that if you believe you do not need anybody else all that shows to me is that you are wildly prideful and in like you you need Jesus. That's what that is what you need. We are pleased here on the cast to welcome our first ever guest to the show. It's Leah Bueller. Welcome, Leah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, I'm a woman. So great to be here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I feel like you should list my accolades. Well, Leah is correct. Leah is a woman, and um, that's a good thing because we don't want it to just be two dudes talking the whole time. Um, well, Leah, I'm just here to meet you on your terms. <laughs> she's here to meet us where we're at. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> so Leah's just been a great volunteer at Risen City Church. She helps out in kids a lot. She helps out in, I mean, so many other ways that I can't even probably list. She's been here since the very beginning. And since before I was here, so really, you should be hosting this show, Leah. Really, I sh no, I should not be. So, Leah, why are you here today? What do you want to talk about? Oh, there are so many things that I want to talk about, um, but the reason that I'm here <laughs> is to talk about um, a book that I have been, as one does, reading. So, as one does, you read your books. Mine just sit on my <laughs> shelf, and and people think I'm smart because I'm reading these heady theology books what do you think of when you think of a book um i think of a a really large time commitment mm -hmm. that i may or may not put the time into yeah yeah i'm thinking pages like page after page after page and then i'm thinking like words that are like grouped into sentences that are further grouped into paragraphs so so what's the title of these words that are grouped into sentences that you're currently reading yeah, these specific words that we're getting to, um, You Are What You Love is the title of the book that I've been reading. And who wrote it? Great question. We're going to have to look to Google for that. Oh, you actually don't know who wrote it? Really you... For sure, it's James K. Smith. James K. Smith. Okay. And what's... Do you know much about him, Mike? 
Is it actually him? Right? Oh, I didn't. I didn't actually look oh, it up. James. I'm pretty sure it is. If I remember, he is basically a former. I think it was former Pentecostal who went reformed, so he sort of has both those flavors. In his wow, writings. it sounds like you. <laughs> yeah, you can. <laughs> I like James Smith. Let's be real. Um, and uh, he writes a lot about uh, philosophy, theology. In, in in this book, he got pretty big on because it was about some of the hard stuff that pastors and people need to deal with. But and did you read the book? I have not read the book in its entirety. No. No further questions. All right, so enough for this episode. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, yeah, so the the main point of the book, well, okay, I haven't read the book in in its entirety either, but what I what I've gathered so far is that it's getting at um, you are what you love. You don't necessarily love what you think you love. So you can think on an intellect you can genuinely think that you love something on an intellectual level. You can be like, yes, I know this. This is what I love. But then on a deeper heart level, if you actually were to examine yourself, it's not necessarily true for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and he also goes, in the book, he goes into this example, uh, or he cites it from some other book um, about, like, the room. So, like, these two guys have an opportunity to go into a room and they get exactly what they want. Um, and then they start thinking about it and they're like, do I really want to go into this room? Because like, what if I don't actually want what I think I want? Blah, 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 blah. What are your thoughts on that? Agreed. No further questions. Great to be here. <laughs> no, I think I think he's right in, in this sense that, I, but I think it also goes deeper, right? Because it's not just that we don't fully know what we want. It's also that, what we love, we become. And so it's like it becomes this narrative of our life that um, you can... Jesus says, right, where your money is, there your heart is, right? That that you can follow your money to find where your heart is, that you that you can get exposed in what you love by just following some of your, your life. And so we actually were just talking about, you know, money and prosperity before. And it's this idea where you can, like you said, tell me as much as you want that you love the poor, but, like, does your money go there? Is your time? You could tell me you that you love Jesus, but is your life shaped around him? So I think it, it is that idea of, you know, almost emotional and spiritual honesty with ourselves, right? That we that we will become what we love. And so we have to be careful what we love because what we love will shape us. Yeah, that's basically what he's getting at, I think, from what I've read. Um, he also he says something along the lines of if or the way to bridge the gap between what you know and what you do and what you act out is submitting yourself to um like rituals and um yeah i guess like rituals that that get at those deep habits that you've already formed that you want to sort of turn in you want to counterform them Mm. if that makes sense Mm. so do you think that you can do you think by doing things like if i say i love something and then i like if I say I love the poor and then I go and give my money to some guy on the street, does that make me love the poor more? That's a great question. I think um, that there is an element in our disciplines of let my action lead my emotion, right? That I, for like, I think because all the different spiritual, because when he says ritual, I guess I would call it spiritual discipline, right? That we go and do these things consistently. I don't always want to read the Bible 
Uh, but I know the more that I do it, the more I want to. And there is that kind of relationship there um, that the more I give, the more I want to give because I see the benefit. So it is kind of in that way. Um, a, a, a discipline can lead to proper emotion. And so I would push back in that one example saying if you just start throwing your money at poor people, you're probably not going to love them more. Um, but So that way I would, would argue that we'd have to actually wrestle with what is the discipline that actually leads to that. And that's where I think deep thinking matters and not just rushing through our discipline. Because I would argue that if you feel like you don't love the poor enough, spend time with them, right? Sit with them. Yeah, like why don't you love them? Yeah, like begin to discover like what about them keeps you from them and if, it, if it's you know prejudice if it's you know um stereotype which probably is most of us thing if it's just i just don't have time for someone who doesn't pay me back well then you can go read luke where jesus literally says the opposite of that right we can begin co- confronting ourselves but then again you get into everything right food right any kind of idolatry ultimately it's going to be a, a book about you know the book about idolatry of what do you love more than jesus and so that's where i would argue that the discipline the goal of the discipline should never be to attack an actual issue, but the issue behind the issue, which is that we don't love Jesus, ultimately. Right. Yes, I agree with that. Sam, do you agree with that? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think, um, like, the whole the whole thing about, like, wanting to read your Bible, like, that is probably the most basic thing that I can relate to my own life. I don't think... I don't think... My dad, so my dad read it to me a lot as a kid and it's like, I didn't really want to dive into it until it was like my choice to go do that myself. I think like I, and then the more I did it myself and was actually actively participating in that learning, in that discovery, that's what made me want to keep going on it. And I mean, I would say the desire was put in there by just my upbringing, but I think because I wasn't actively choosing to do it on my own terms, I couldn't develop that love for scripture myself, if that makes sense. Sure. And I don't know if that's been other people's experience with, with the, you know, reading the Bible, for example. You, you kind of hear that you should do it. Other people kind of try to make you do it indirectly. But until that's a conscious choice on your part, you're not really going to that, that deep love for it isn't going to be birthed. Well, and it's probably even more than conscious choice. It's understanding why the conscious choice matters. Like, see, when, it, when I start hearing about this, it sort of speaks to me this idea of, you know, like, like that, that, that room example that, that you gave. It's what I right now want to know what I actually love. Would you? No. Because mm-hmm. I know it would be selfish. And that's where, like, we talk about being in progress people. Like, the grace of God is meant to explode that out of my heart, but I'm not there yet. And so if I were to get what I wanted, it would probably be very self-focused, right? And I would, and it'd probably have some veneer of Christianity on it because I'm hoping that that's put its way down. But, like, even I remember I actually talked with someone about this uh, recently where, you know, one of the probably the idols of my heart when I was younger was that I wanted to, you know, be known, right? Especially when you're a preacher, a talker, like that's part of like kind of like the performer part of our heart. Um, but I remember I used to say, I just want to be influential. 
Because that sounds better than famous, right? And so, well, because I just want people to know that I love Jesus and I'm preaching the gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? You got to put that nice sounding like twist. A hundred percent. It sounds good. It's it sounds like bad. I'm just being a good guy who just wants to help people know Jesus. No, you're and you, selfish. Yeah, you can rationalize that so well. You can be like, ah, I'm just, I'm just led by God to go up there and be to be this person and for the for His glory, for His glory. But if I mean, it benefits me. I'm not yeah. gonna say no, Jesus. Right? Like, I'm not gonna put it out there. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think I think I have that as well a lot. And this almost goes back to that idea of um, wanting to create something that lives beyond yourself, that search for significance. It's like, yeah, I want to lead people to a soul-changing relationship with Jesus as our church goes. But I kind of, I almost want to get something out of that for myself. That like, I was the one that led this it, person yeah. to that place. And like, that is, I mean, it might result in some good things happening, but I think there is some sinful desire that can creep into even uh, good outcomes or the pursuit of good outcomes. Yeah. Well, and that's, I, I, I believe it was John Wesley who talked about that. Um, no, it was Jonathan Edwards, if I'm correct. Oh, he's name dropping left and right. It's because, you know, what can I do? We name I, drop a lot on here. We do. Name dropping, anyways, old dead guys. But... Um, who talked about how essentially every good thing we do as humans is shrouded in pride in some way. That if I am going to you know, care for the poor, right, I might not get any benefit out of it, but if I let someone see that I did that, now I'm a good person, mm, right? And yeah. I think it's impossible with our sinful nature to get away from that. Now, this is where things will get a little messy because I do believe that the goal of, of salvation in us is to get to the root of those things and begin to take them out. That, that if... We are in Christ and he is in us and the spirit of God is empowering us and changing us that I think truly at the deepest level of what it means to be a Christian, that my heart, that not my heart, my redeemed heart does want what God wants. It's all the other layers on top of it that mess it up. It gets to get from that place of like we talked about how you live out of who you are, that that out of the heart the mouth speaks, that the soul leaks into life. We've said that before. And and I believe that when the spirit moves in and we get saved, he begins to heal that. But there's a lot of filters that still need to get sort of cleaned out along the way and that can mess some of that stuff up. And so where I say what I actually want, what I want, I think at the deepest level of my heart, I do want what Jesus wants. But what scares me is that I know that there's a part of me that does not want what Jesus wants. Mm. And then how does that begin work itself out? Yes. Okay. Speaking of working itself out, uh, Instagram. What do you think of Christians on Instagram? No, follow me. This, this is relevant because you're talking about how, yeah, I'll do a good thing, but I'll do it. Maybe I genuinely do want to do that because I love Jesus. But now I'm like a Christian on Instagram who's posting about, do you guys know that I fasted today? Or like, just letting you guys know I'm not going to be on social media for the next 21 days because I'm doing a fast. What do you think about that? <laughs> Leah's just going for it. We like yeah. this. First, well, I think, again, if you're someone who, so if I, I'll just use me as an example. I rarely post on Instagram. I think I should do it more. Because a deep mm-hmm from Sam in agreeance. Let's get that on mic. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> just because, and I'll get there in a minute. Um, That's, never mind. <laughs> but if I went on right now and said, hey, guys, I'm gone for 21 days, like, who would care? 
because I don't post that often. That would just be so I get people knowing yeah, yeah. I'm on a fast. Well, I'm right? not so much talking about you then. I'm talking about like. Well, I mean, so so I think it's it's contextual a little bit. So if it's just some random Christian guy, white girls, right? Christian white girls who post every day that all of a sudden it's like now I'm taking a break. It's like you just take a break and let you know. Jesus says like go to your prayer closet in the private and God will reward you. And if you don't want that, then you get reward with them all clapping. For what you, did you right? just say? I have no idea. Prayer closet. Yeah. The prayer closet. No, sorry. Just all your words to me. Mumbled. This is why we have to have Leah here because she will keep us honest and humble and in line. In line. Thank you for that correction. Thank you. I, I receive it with joy. Um, if you're some Christian white girl who just posts about how good you are, you need to chill. You probably should get off Instagram. Yeah, but they, they mask it. It's not. It's It's like. They put a Jesus spin on it. They're really so good like, at masking it too, I should add. Really good. Really convincing. Not me, of course. My social media use is purely God-honoring, but everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, I, yeah. All right, all right. No, so I do think that... I, I, okay, tell, so tell people that, that you're going to fast or whatever, fine, whatever. If you want that, go ahead. I think the worst ones are, you know, where they post them doing like random acts of kindness. Because it's like, the whole point of the random act of kindness is that you just did it for that person, not so that all your Instagram followers think that you're an awesome person, right? Because the, the fast one, if you're going off and people actually expect content from you, you know, maybe I can understand that, that you do that. Like, I know some people that my, my wife follows who, like, have actual, like, lifestyle blogs because that's a thing, right? That people, any, any, that's a whole other that's thing. That's definitely right? a whole other <laughs> that's thing. That's a whole other thing. But who, like daily post content about certain things especially with um emily has a lot of like stay-at-home mom things that she's in because that's what she is and and those women when they were going on these like two week fasts or whatever they would post because people do expect as a business essentially that you do this so i think that's fine but when it's just some random person want to let the world know i'm fasting for 21 days it's like get over yourself right like even if it's it's for jesus like this is where the tension does lie because i do think that social media is the place where people gather and that we can use influence for Jesus. And so we should, that's why I feel convicted that I should be posting maybe a little more as a pastor, especially in the modern world, right? That this should not be something that I'm not engaging with because people that I want to reach are there. Uh, but I think when we begin doing things to almost have a social works righteousness in the sense of, hey, if you all see that I'm good, and I'm a good Christian, I somehow gain credit, or I've proved this, and I think it gets down to insecurity, there's so many different brokennesses that I think exist in that space, plus, when, when it comes to Instagram and social media, there are, you know, links to narcissism and depression, right, there are links to, like, the idea of, I'm gonna get validated through this, and so I'm gonna have to fish for certain things, and you can mask it all you want, like, I think if we don't allow Jesus to actually be the one who double taps for the heart, <laughs> uh, then we're just going to mess up anyway. And so I think there, I think it's a, you can't, you, I would not judge someone for doing that because I don't know their heart legitimately, but mm -hmm. I would question the motive. I think I, I'd have to. Um, and if I don't know them, then it doesn't matter to me if they're part of the church. I'm like, girl, Get over yourself. This is ridiculous. I wouldn't say that. I'd be much more gentle and use mercy and love and grace, maybe, depending on a relationship. Well, yeah. But I mean, what what's the difference between you not sitting there and like judging them and you being like, well, like I sort of get it. But it's like for me, when I see those posts, I just internally like cringe and I'm like, 
uh, like, did you really need to do that? So, like, what do you say to someone like me? Like, I'm on social media. I'm not, well, yeah, let's be honest. Sometimes I am judging people, like, obviously. But I shouldn't be. I, I would say that, yeah, like, we, we want to be careful because this is where the mirror gets put up, right? Why am I judging them? So am I better than them for not posting it because I'm a better Christian now and I knew more? Well, that's, that's the trap. Right? It's a self-righteous trap at that point. I'm the Pharisee and they're the sinner. Right? And they might look at me and say, you never post to talk about Jesus. So you're fine. We can play this game. Right? You know, I think it's like also, what are your expectations of social media? If, it's true. If you expect it to be a place where you're like, well, I'm here. Like, it's a community. Like, I'm here to get the truth. Like, I'm here to see all of, like, I'm here to see everything. And obviously people only post their best things mm. or their their best, yeah, like their Jesus-y things. It's like, well... Yeah, obviously my, my expectations are skewed because I'm if I'm going here to get like everything and I'm not getting everything, then yeah, well, I'm even mad. I guess the question is why do we think we're gonna get a full picture of someone on Instagram? Like, yeah. like who actually? I know we talk about it's like stories in my life, whatever, but like, does anyone actually believe you're seeing reality? And I think intellectually we will say that I know it's not, but then emotionally, I think that's the issue is we need to be able to wrestle with our own dissonance there of. I know you're only ever going to post the good stuff. Like how many, let, let's be real. If we were taking an Instagram story, right? How many times is it going to take? Like Sam and I did one for the cast tonight. It took like what, five times? Cause it was like, yeah. that was dumb. We're not doing that. Right. And and it's not, not me, not me. I am a one and done kind of gal. I get it right the first time and then I move on. You are immaculate in this regard. Spell that. Um, I am immaculate. Okay, that's enough. All right. And, and so like, I, like, I think we just have to recognize that. And that's where, again, the, the potential fakeness maybe is what we're picking up on, right? That we know Instagram is fake, right? And even for those two people who try to make it more real by being more raw or whatever, even in, that, in your attempt to be raw, you're not being raw. You're just staging real life. It still is that. And, and like, I know, I think maybe we have to just recognize that social media in its essence is a platform for connection. And like, I actually really like it. I think it's awesome. But it's a it's also an avenue for you know shallow spirituality. Mm. I think like the yeah the expectations thing is really huge. Like what are you expecting out of people? And you have to remember everyone is using it differently. Like my social like I'm on social media a lot. I'm you if you looked at my Instagram page, you might not be led to believe <laughs> that I'm on Instagram very much. Or, or never. <laughs> but I'm, I'm not on it very much at all. I have two pictures that my friend took with his really nice camera that I think I look really attractive in. So they're up there <laughs> for that reason. And he is single right now. I'm just put it up there. <laughs> oh, let's talk about Christian dating apps. Continue. Give me one second there. Um, but I also recognize that other people are going to post a lot more and they're going to use it completely differently than me. And I kind of like, I get a feel for how people use it after a while. And I sort of, you know, I have expectations for how this person in our church is going to use it versus this person who maybe I went to school with who's not a Christian. I, you know, I'm not going to hold them to the same standard just because they're trying to get different things out of it. And really, I'm on it just to consume, to be honest. I just want to keep up with people and feel like I'm still part of their lives. <laughs> Yeah, but even in the consumption, like we have to think about like what are we feeding in that mm -hmm. because it's going to trip us up somehow, right? Yeah, and, I, and like again, I think expectation is a big thing there and like absolutely consciously knowing that you are not getting an accurate picture of someone's life based on what they're posting on their feed. And I think we are actually as a generation getting a lot better at that because you see like 
genres of posts kind of and it's like what we're talking about like we can really see through the whole you know i'm posting about my fast because that's like a genre of posting that is like a thing that we've seen a million yeah, times to be before, fair right? i have not in recent days seen a lot of white girl christian posts i haven't which is good like i think we're getting wise to it as I a hope. generation maybe just my feed i'm just like not following any of them but um but i like because usually new year's especially is like the time right it's like i'm gonna read my bible this year i'm gonna be whatever and I didn't, I don't remember, maybe I just blocked, blocked them all out, but I don't actually remember a lot of those like typical, you know, I got my coffee, my Bible, my journal sort of half open and I got my essential oils going off and I'm just having this nice little moment as if we know that's how it goes because it doesn't, right? No one is, and if you're doing that, if you're taking that much effort to read your Bible, I applaud you. That's, you, you should get some likes for that. But most people open their Bible, take a notebook and then hopefully read it and write some things down. I'm like staging this little like nice coffee shop moment. It's ridiculous.